Chapter Seventeen of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Seventeen. The Whole Truth. Mrs. Brace, good evening. May I come in? Then followed the sound of footsteps and the closing of the door. I shan't detain you long, Mrs. Brace. They were still in the hall. May I come in? Certainly. The tardy assent was the perfection of indifference. They entered the living room. Lucille, without using her eyes, knew that her father was standing just within the doorway, glancing around with his slight squint, working his lips nervously, his head thrust forward. Ah! His shrill drawl, although he kept it low, carried back to Lucille. All alone, may I ask? He went toward the chairs by the window. That is, I hope to have, well, a rather confidential little talk with you. Mrs. Brace resumed her place on the armless rocker after she had moved a chair forward for him. Lucille heard it grate on the floor. Certain that he had taken it, she looked into the room. Her intuition was correct. Mrs. Brace had placed it so that his back was turned to both the bedroom door and the door into the entry. This made her escape possible. The relief she got from the thought was of a violent nature. It came to her like a blow, almost forcing a gasp from her constricted throat. If she could tiptoe without sound a distance of eighteen feet, a matter of six or seven steps, she could leave the apartment without his knowledge. To that she was doubly urged. In the first place, Hastings' warning drummed upon her brain. He had specified the importance of keeping even her father in ignorance of her errand. Upon that came another reason for flight, her fear of hearing what her father would say. A wave of nausea weakened her. She bowed down, there in the dark, under the burden of her suspicion. He had come to do, for quite a different reason, what she had done. She kept away from definite analysis of his motive. Fear for Byrne, or fear for himself, it was equally horrible to her consideration. "'I admire your spirit, Mrs. Brace,' he was saying in ingratiating tone and your shrewdness. I've followed all you said in the papers, and I'm in hopes that we may—' He stopped, and Lucille, judging from the thin edges of sounds that she caught, had a mental picture of his peering over his shoulder. He resumed, "'I must apologize, I'm sure, but you'll realize my concern for secrecy after I've explained. May I, uh—' Do you mind if I look about for possible hearers? It's unnecessary, came the calm, metallic assurance. I've no objection to your searching my apartment, if you insist. She laughed, a mirthless deprecation of his timidity, and coolly put herself at his disposal in another sentence. I've sense enough to form an idea of what you'll propose, and I'd scarcely want others to hear it, would I? Ah, he drawled, expressing a grudging disposition to accept her assurance. 
"'Certainly not. Well, that's very reasonable, and obliging, I'm sure.' Again, by the thin fringes of sound, Lucille got information of his settling into his chair. "'Why,' he began, "'why, in the name of all the unfathomable, inscrutable angels—' First, Mr. Sloane,' Mrs. Brace interrupted him, and Lucille heard the rattle of a newspaper. "'As a preface to our—shall we say conference—our conference, then, let me read you this summary of my position. That is, if you care to understand my position thoroughly.' She was far from her habitual quietness, rattling the newspaper incessantly. The noise, Lucille realized, would hang as a curtain between her father's ears and the possible sounds of her progress from the bedroom door to the entry. Stealing a glance into the living room, she saw his back, and, over his stooped shoulders, Mrs. Brace's calm face. In that instant, the newspaper shook more violently, enough, she thought, to signal cooperation. She sickened again at sight of that woman about to dispense bought favors to her father. The impulse to step forth and proclaim her presence rose strongly within her, but she was turned from it by fear that her interruption might produce disastrous results. After all, she was not certain of his intention. She knew, however, that at any moment he might insist on satisfying himself, by a tour of inspection, that he was safe from being overheard. She hesitated no longer. She would try to get away. "'Look at this, Mr. Sloane, if you please,' Mrs. Brace was saying. "'Notice how the items are made to stand out, each in a paragraph of large type?' She held the paper so that Sloane bent forward, and, against his will, was held to joint perusal while she read aloud. The curtain of protecting noise thus was thickened. "'That Mrs. Brace has knowledge of the following facts,' the harsh, colorless voice was reading. Lucille began her escape. She moved with an agony of precaution, taking steps only a few inches long, her arms held out from her sides to avoid unnecessary rustling of her clothing. She went on the balls of her feet, keeping the heels of her shoes always free of the floor, each step a slow torture. Her breathing stopped. A hysterical contraction of her chest prevented breathing. Her face burned like fire. Her head felt crowded, as if the blood tried to ooze through the confining scalp. There was a great roaring in her ears. The pulse in her temples was like the blows of sledges. Once, midway of the distance, as she stood lightly balanced, with arms outstretched, something went wrong with her equilibrium. She started forward, as she had often done when a child, with the sensation of falling on her face. Her skirt billowed out in front of her. If she had had any breath in her, she would have cried out but the automatisms of her body worked better than her overtaxed brain. Her right foot went out easily and softly. She marveled at that independent motion of her leg, and, taking up the falling weight of her body, restored her balance. Mrs. Brace's voice had not faltered, 
although she must have seen the misstep. Arthur Sloane's bowed shoulders had not stirred. Mrs. Brace continued the printed enumeration of her stores of knowledge. Lucille took another step. She was safe, almost. There remained but a yard of her painful progress. One more step, she comforted herself, would put her on the threshold of the entry door, and from there to the corridor door, shielded by the entry wall from possible observation by her father, would be an easy business. She completed that last step. On the threshold, she had to turn her body through an arc of ninety degrees, unless she backed out of the door. This she was afraid to do. Her heel might meet an obstruction. A raised plank of the flooring, even, would mean an alarming noise. She began to turn. The reading continued. The whole journey from door to door, in spite of the anguished care of every step, had consumed scarcely a minute. She was turning, the balancing arms outstretched. Deep down in her chest there was the beginning of a sensation, muscles relaxing, the promise of a long breath of relief. Her left hand, or perhaps her elbow, in the blinding, benumbing flash of consternation she did not know which, touched the pile of magazines on the table that was set against the door frame. The magazines did not fall to the floor, but the fluttering of the loose cover of the one on top made a noise. She fled, taking with her the flashing memory of the first stirring of her father's figure and the crackle of the paper in Mrs. Brace's hand. In two light steps she was at the corridor door. Her hands found the latch and turned it. She ran down the stairs with rapid, skimming steps, the door clicking softly shut as she made the turn on the next landing. Her exit had been wonderfully quiet. She knew this, in spite of the fact that her straining senses had exaggerated the flutter of the magazine cover and the click of the door into a terrifying volume of sound. It was entirely possible that Mrs. Brace had been able to persuade her father that he had heard nothing more than some outside noise. She was certain that he had not seen her. She crossed the dim, narrow lobby of the Wallman so quickly and so quietly that the girl at the telephone board did not look in her direction. Once in the street, she was seized by desire to confide to Hastings the story of her experience. She decided to act on the impulse. He was at first more concerned with her physical condition than with what she had to tell. He saw how near she was to the breaking point. "'My dear child,' he said in the tone of fatherly solicitude which she had learned to like, "'comfort before conference. Here, this chair by the window. So. And this wreck of a fan. Can you use it? Fine. Now, cool your flushed face in this thin, very thin stream of a breeze. Feel it? A glass of water?' just for the tinkling of ice? That's better, isn't it? The only light in the room was the reading lamp, under a dark green shade, and from this little island of illumination there ran out a chaotic sea of shadows, huge waves of them, 
mounting the height of the bookshelves and breaking irregularly on the ceiling. In the dimness, as he walked back and forth hunting for the fan or bringing her the water, he looked weirdly large, like, she thought dully, a fairy giant curiously draped. But the serenity of his expression touched her. She was glad she had come. While she told her story, he stood in front of her, encouraging her with a smile or a nod now and then, or ambled with soft step among the shadows, always keeping his eyes upon her. For the moment, her tired spirit was freshened by his lavish praise of the manner in which she had accomplished her undertaking. Following that, his ready sympathy made it easier for her to discuss her fear that her father had planned to bribe Mrs. Brace. Nevertheless, the effort taxed her severely. At the end of it, she leaned back and closed her eyes, only to open them with a start of fright at the resultant dizziness. The sensation of bodily lightness had left her. Her limbs felt sheathed in metal. An acute, throbbing pain racked her head. She was too weary to combat the depression which was like a cold, freezing hand at her heart. "'You don't say anything,' she complained weakly. He stood near her chair, gazing thoughtfully before him. "'I'm trying to understand it,' he said. "'Why your father did that. "'You're right, of course. "'He went there to pay or to keep quiet. "'But why?' "'He looked at her closely. "'Could it be possible,' he put the inquiry at last, "'that he knew her before the murder?' "'I've asked him,' she said. "'No, he never had heard of her, "'neither he nor Judge Wilton.' I even persuaded him to question Jarvis about that. It was the same. Jarvis never had, until last Sunday morning. You think of everything, he congratulated her. No, oh no. Some quick and overmastering emotion broke down the last of her endurance. Whether it was a new and finer appreciation of his persistent, untiring search for the guilty man, or the realization of how sincerely he liked her, giving her credit for a frankness she had not exercised, whatever the pivotal consideration was, she felt that she could no longer deceive him. She closed her lips tightly to keep back the rising sobs, and regarded him with questioning, fearful eyes. "'What is it?' he asked gently, reading her appealing look. "'I've a confession to make,' she said miserably. He refused to treat it as a tragedy. "'But it can't be very bad,' he exclaimed pleasantly. "'When we're overwrought, imagination's like a lantern swinging in the wind, changing the size of everything every second. "'But it is bad,' she insisted. "'I haven't been fair.' I couldn't bring myself to tell you this. I tried to think you'd get along without it. And now? She answered him with an outward calmness, which was, in reality, emotional dullness. She had suffered so much that to feel vividly was beyond her strength. You have the right to know it, 
she said, looking at him out of brilliant, unwinking eyes. It's about father. He was out there, on the lawn, before he turned on the light in his room. I heard him come in a minute before Byrne went down the back stairs and out to the lawn. And I heard him go to his window and stand there, looking out, at least five long minutes before he flashed on his light. He waited, thinking she might have more to tell. Construing his silence as reproof, she said, without changing either her expression or her voice, "'I know. It's awful. I should have told you. Perhaps I've done great harm.' "'You've been very brave,' he consoled her with infinite tenderness. "'But it happens that I'd already satisfied myself on that point. I knew he'd been out there.' She was dumb, incapable of reacting to his words. Even the fact that he was smiling with genuine amusement did not affect her. Here comes the grotesque element, the comical, that's involved in so many tragedies, he explained. Your father's weakness for cure of nervousness, and his shrinking from the ridicule he's suffered because of it, there's the explanation of why he was out there that night. She could not see significance in that, but neither could she summon energy to say so. She wondered vaguely why he thought it funny. That night, rather the early morning hours following, while the rest of you were in the library, I looked through his room, and I found a pair of straw sandals in the closet such as a man could slip on and off without having to bend down to adjust them. And they were wet, inside and out. Sunday morning, when Judge Wilton and I were at his bedside, I saw on the table a quack pamphlet on the dew treatment for nervousness, the benefit of the wet, cooling grass upon the feet at night. You know the kind of thing. So... Oh she breathed, tremulous and weak. So that's why he was out there. Why didn't I think? Oh, how I've suspected him of... But remember, he warned, that's why he went out. We still don't know what he... what happened after he got out there, or why he's refused to say that he ever was out there. When we think of this and other things, and, too, his call tonight on Mrs. Brace, for bribery, leaving what we thought was a sick bed. But he's been up all day, she corrected. And yet, he said, and stopped, reflecting. Tell me, she implored, tell me, Mr. Hastings, do you suspect my father, or not, of the... He answered her unfinished question with a solemn, painstaking care. "'Miss Sloane, you're not one who would want to be misled. "'You can bear the truth. "'I'd be foolish to say that he's not under suspicion. "'He is. "'Any one of the men there that night may have committed the murder. "'Webster, your father, Wilton, "'only there suspicion seems totally gratuitous, "'Eugene Russell, Jarvis, I've heard things about him, 
Any one of them may have struck that blow. May have. And father, she said in a grieved bewilderment, has paid Mrs. Brace to stop saying she suspects Byrne. She shuddered, facing the alternative. Or himself. You see, he framed the conclusion for her, how hard he makes it for us to keep him out of trouble, if that gets out? He's put his hand on the live wire of circumstantial evidence, a wire that too often thrashes about, striking the wrong man. And burn, she cried out, I think I could stand anything if only I knew— But this time the mutinous sobs came crowding past her lips. She could not finish the inquiry she had begun. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline